0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mr Barton maths podcast with me Craig Barton a show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education this time around I spoke to Colin Foster Colin is a former maths teacher who is now an assistant professor at the Centre for Research in Mathematics Education in the School of Education at the University of Nottingham. He is an author, has written numerous research papers and is the creator of three outstanding websites, Foster 77, mathematical beginnings, and something that's going to be a key focus of this interview, mathematical etudes. Now, I'm just going to throw it out there at the start. I cannot pronounce that word. Etudes, etudes etudes. You'll hear numerous attempts, all of them unsuccessful, by me throughout the episode, but Colin explains what it's all about, so don't think too badly of me. Anyway, Colin shares a keen interest in three areas that I am more than a little obsessed about. Purposeful practice, or what Colin refers to as a, here we go again, mathematical etude. Measuring students' confidence in their answers and effective questioning. If any of those areas pique your interest too, then I can promise you, you are in for an absolute treat. So, in a wide-ranging interview, we covered the following things and much more besides. We spoke about a man who we both admire and who has had a great influence on us, the great Malcolm Swan, who sadly passed away earlier this year. Colin then describes a fascinating occasion where a mistake he uh, he made in a lesson could have actually been turned into a really valuable learning opportunity. We then move on to discussing mathematical etudes, with Colin sharing a lovely one with us. Can these mathematical etudes replace drills? How about other rich tasks? And then I ask Colin my current favourite question. Can you teach problem solving? And I'll tell you what, his answer is fascinating. Then it's time for a discussion about confidence, with me and Colin sharing our strategies for getting a measure of students' confidence in their answers, and why this is such a simple and potentially valuable thing to do. Then we discuss questions and questioning, starting with the obvious, what makes a good question? And then, when should, and just importantly, when should not, students be encouraged to ask questions. Finally, Colin reflects on research and books he would recommend to teachers, along with what he wish he knew when he first started teaching. This really is one of my favourite interviews I've ever done. Colin's incredibly passionate and knowledgeable, and it was just such a pleasure to discuss and debate with him over subjects that fascinate me. I learned so much. I really hope you find it as useful and enjoyable as I did. A quick mention that depending on when you're listening to this podcast, my book, How I Wish I Taught Maths, may be either about to be released, available for pre-order, ready to buy, or sent to the pulping factory due to lack of sales, Alan Partridge style. It's a collection of all the things I've learned from two years of talking to the world's leading experts on this podcast and reading all the research and books I could get my hands on. Some would say it's the ideal Christmas present, but I could not possibly comment. Anyway, enough book plugging. Without further ado, let me introduce Colin Foster. As I say, this was an absolute gem of an episode for me. I'm so lucky to speak to people like Colin. Enjoy, and I will see you on the other side. Okay, Colin, so we're going to start, as we always do, with your math speed dating questions. So, question number one, what is your favourite number and why? Well, it's a tricky one, actually. I've got quite a few favourite numbers, I think.
1: It's a nice thing about numbers, there's plenty of them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I thought about saying something like like pi or e or i or zero or one, these kind of special numbers you could have whole books about. Um, I was quite obsessed with pi when I was a teenager. I remember... Um, Memorising lots of uh, digits of pi, and I, I kind of thought there was something mysterious and kind of special about it. And I look back on that now and think that was a bit, was a bit strange. I suppose there was the awe and wonder of maths was there, but I, I don't think I can say that those digits have, have done me any good. I kind of, <laughs> when I think back and think, what do I wish I, I wish I'd remembered um, prime numbers. I wish I'd memorised the first hundred prime numbers or something. It would have been far more useful. So I think if I had to go for a number, I'd probably pick one with a lot of factors. I really. Um, uh, I love factors and prime factors, and so I think uh, if you look for the number less than 100 that's got the most factors, uh, there's actually five, all with 12 factors, but if you go for a number under 1,000 that's got the most factors, um, I think that's going to be my favourite number. Do you know what it is?
0: Oh, so there's only, it's unique, is it? Just one yeah, number? It is. Oh, um... No, I'm, oh, I'm. I'm assuming some kind of multiple of twelve, but I, I, I don't know. Go, go on, Have, Colin. I had, had
1: a guess. What would you say?
0: Right. If at a guess. I'd imagine it'd be something in the. I mean, this is you put me on the spot here, Colin. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, something in the eight eight hundreds, I'll be. Some some even number in the 800s, but that, That's as, as far as I'd go, I think. Well,
1: you're you're absolutely right. So uh, maybe I'll leave it hanging. If yeah. You want to work it out. I mean, what I thought it was, I was wrong. I thought before I worked it out, I thought it'd be something like seven hundred and twenty. Um, and that's got thirty factors. But there's actually one, as you as you say, in the eight hundreds that's got more than than that. Nice. Um, it's really fascinating how factors. How number of factors a number has works out because because um, the number the answer to the question's got thirty two factors um, and seven twenty 's got thirty factors, um, but if you want a number with thirty one factors um, there aren 't any small numbers with thirty one factors um, you have to go over a billion to get a number with exactly thirty one factors so I think these patterns in, in the number of factors were number of a number are fascinating, and you can kind of explain it all with year eight maths. you just need prime factorization you can do. You can do all this and make sense of it all
0: and I'll tell you what you, you you've kind of hit on on a wider thing here Colin and we' we're, we're going to dig into this when we um when we get on to, um talking about the the etudes and, and purposeful practice, mm. but something like factors and multiples, the first time kids meet that is probably year three or year four and and or maybe even year two mm. sometimes, and yet they're still doing it at year eleven so each year yeah. when teachers Cover it with with their students. They need to have a range of of interesting ideas or tasks or ways of approaching the topic up their sleeves, just for just for the variety, if 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 nothing else. And you're absolutely right with something like factors, multiples, and, and primes and prime factors. There's so many different ways you can go about it that are absolutely mm. fascinating. Yeah, no, I, I love and that.
1: that. That technique of, of, of prime factorising is so powerful, isn't it? And I think often yes. you know in textbooks sometimes it just says. Prime factorise and, and the child writes down yeah two cubed times three and that's it that's the end of the question and you can understand why kids think well, what was the point of that what why, why do we do this yes. and I think some of these questions you can actually it really shows the power of of why prime factorising a number is such a useful thing to do
0: flip it i'll tell you what i think we could do a whole podcast just on prime factorization because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> even because even like even the link between the prime factorizations and the number of factors is is yeah. fascinating not immediately obvious to to students Absolutely. as well yeah yes, yes. It, like. well that's a that's an excellent answer that may be my favorite ever answer to a uh, favorite number <laughs> concept. you may have peaked too soon here but that, that, oh, was, yeah. that <laughs> was superb. and uh, what about number two what was your favorite topic in maths as a student
1: well, I kind of liked everything really in maths, I and mean, I loved maths at school and just enjoyed everything about it. I think for me, um, calculus was special. When I got to calculus, I thought this is the cleverest thing I've ever seen, um, and I, I was very interested in science as a as a kid. And I read science books, and I found that the science books I wanted to read had calculus in them, and I didn't know it was calculus. So I remember taking. Uh, one of these books into school and showing it to my physics teacher and saying what is that and pointing out an integral sign I said what is it and uh, remember she said that's calculus that's integration you'll learn about that in the sixth form so I thought oh um, so I went off to the library and found a book called teach yourself calculus it's actually <laughs> quite a good book um, and so I was a bit self-taught with things like that um, and um, I really thought it was just the most fascinating thing that uh, i couldn't have guessed would exist that you could find the gradient of a curve and just sort of things that seem impossible um and I uh, I I love that so I think we calculus
0: Nice. And, and where do you stand, Colin? So I was I was interviewing Peps McRae um, just yesterday, in fact, and we were having a discussion about how he really likes mechanics, but, but not a fan of statistics. And I'm completely the, the other way around. Are you genuinely one of these people who just enjoys all areas of maths or are, are there some bits that don't kind of tickle your fancy?
1: Well, certainly when I was at school, I thought
0: statistics wasn't very interesting, and I didn't like the messiness of the
1: numbers. And I guess it's the real life side. I loved pure maths, and I yes. loved, uh, and I loved mechanics. For some reason, I didn't find that so messy because. Uh, you kind of give answers like uh three pi root two over three over five newtons or something <laughs> you know these kind of weird kind of pure mathsy answers to applied questions but no i didn't really like statistics very much when i was at school um and certainly when i was at university i i, I did a science degree so i did um a lot of the mechanics stuff and much less on statistics but then kind of since then as i've got into educational research statistics actually really fascinates me now and i'm really interested in learning lots of
0: Kind of stats techniques, so uh, I think I've become a bit more rounded than I was. Got it, F- fantastic. And, and final question, Colin. Then, if you weren't involved in in education, what what job would you like to do? That's a tricky one, actually, because I I always say if I wasn't a maths teacher,
1: I'd be some other kind of teacher. I always feel that there's something uh, teachery in me that I would teach something else. Um, but uh, if I if it has to be out of education, maybe a novelist. I've always enjoyed writing um and uh i have lots of ideas of of plots and characters and things but i never have the time to actually make it into a story that anyone could read so uh yeah i would love to have the time to, to sit and write write novels
0: oh nice and would they have like a, a mathematical slant to them well they um, might do i have yeah possibly not necessarily though oh nice oh you you've intrigued me there calling it yeah, definitely try <laughs> and make some time for that <laughs> yeah, yeah. um and uh what about your career Colin I wonder if you could just give us a, a brief overview of um, kind of how it all started for you and and how you got to where you are now
1: uh yeah I suppose it's a bit unconventional I did a, a natural sciences degree um and um really because I, I enjoyed everything at school and thought this is quite a broad thing I could do um, I kind of had the idea that you could learn maths from books, but with science you needed equipment and stuff. And so, if you were going to do something at university, you might as well do something where there was um, you're going to make use of the fact that you were there rather than just sitting in a library. Um, I don't think that anymore because I think you need people and, as well. But um, that was how I thought about it at the time. I thought, oh, I can keep my maths going just uh, out of a book, whereas uh, science I need access to a lab. So I did science, um, and after that I, I kind of ended up specialising in chemistry and did a PhD in chemistry afterwards. Um, which I really loved. Um, so I thought about going in a in a chemistry direction, and I thought about teaching science. Um, again, my issue with teaching science is kind of the other way around. That um, you know, if you want to do science in a meaningful way, you need time to and access to equipment that schools don't always have, and there's all the kind of whole safety thing. Whereas with maths, you know, I love it that in maths, if a child says what happens, you can say, "Well, try it." Just yes. see what happens. Experiment. Just uh, uh, play around with it. Try and a calculator, try on paper. Um, you can't do that in science. You, you can't do an UN unauthorised experiments, even, you know, as an undergraduate. So um, for me, teaching science um, didn't hold the same appeal as teaching maths. where I, th- I thought you can you can kind of do anything. Um, so I did a maths PGCE. Um, and then I taught in an 11 to 16 school for a bit, um, which I really enjoyed. Um, but I wanted to teach some A-levels. So then I moved to an 11 to 18 school. And then uh, after that, um, I went to the University of Nottingham really because of Malcolm Swan, um, who I'd got to know over a few years and who invited me to work on a project there. And so uh, started at Nottingham and uh, been there ever since.
0: Lipinac, and I, I wonder as well because we're recording this um, in towards the end of twenty seventeen, and obviously the, the sad news of, of Malcolm's passing earlier in this year. Mm. I, I wonder, can you just talk a little bit about about the kind of influence that that perhaps Malcolm's had on you and and some of the other people that you've worked with?
1: Well, he was amazing. We used to have these um, design meetings where. Um You'd come along with a task that you'd worked on. I think I'm quite good at writing tasks, so I turn up with my task and show it to Malcolm, and he'd say some nice things about it. And then he'd say, You could do this, and just <laughs> lift it to another level, you know, and uh, say, Well, oh, why didn't you do it the other way around? Or Why don't you have this instead? Or Why don't you put that on cards? Or Why don't you not put that on cards? You know, he would think of all the changes that you could make and then suggest something that was just so much better. <laughs> and um, he really lifted, and I think I think he did that for other people as well. And I think he. Um, really elevated what people were able to produce and it was actually fascinating to watch him do that with other people when you could sit back and it wasn't your task and you could see this task you think oh that's a good task they've got and then by the end of the meeting it was just so much better so he really had he had a great insight into what children would do with things so he was fantastic at anticipating what children would do and I think that was part of his success he had You have that great ability to look at a task and say, hmm, I think children might do this. And you would think, oh, I never considered that. Yes, they might do. What would we do if they did that? And I think that's a really good way of improving tasks is to have someone with experience say, what would you do if this happened? Or what what might happen here and how would you respond? It It can really elevate a task.
0: Absolutely. And uh, I think, yeah, Malcolm's legacy will will live on for for eternity through through all the wonderful stuff he's done. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, All right, let's let's I'm going to ask you what's probably my my favorite question I ever asked my podcast guests, but it's often the most uncomfortable for for my guests, unfortunately. And that's that's (laughs) uh, that's when things go wrong. And I wonder if you can think back to to a lesson you've delivered or a workshop you've run or however you want to interpret it something that you've uh, either seen or delivered yourself that didn't go to plan and what i'm interested in is is, is why didn't it work what, what did you learn from the experience
1: yeah well i think back to a lesson um quite a long time ago actually where i was doing um a lesson with 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 the year eight class it was one of those sort of sunny afternoons where all the windows were open but there was no air uh, coming in and it was kind of hot and it was after lunch and you know one of those sorts of days and everybody was kind of in a slump um, <laughs> including me I'm sure and we were doing straight line graphs and I remember that I don't remember exactly what I was doing but I was sitting at the computer with the graph drawing package open and I think I was asking kids to suggest equations of lines and then predict how they were going to look and I was typing y equals 2x plus 3 or something what's it going to look like which way is it going to go that kind of thing and they were showing with their arms what they were expecting it to look like and I'm kind of doing this and I think it was pretty dull
0: yeah. And, this is sounds and as a was good. Typing, colour,
1: this. As I was typing it in, I typed something like y equals x, but I bumped the x key, and it it was y equals x x. And before I noticed, I pressed enter, and of course, with y equals x x, you get effectively y equals x squared. You get a parabola, <laughs> and this parabola just came up on the screen, shocked me as much as anyone else. And somebody said, "Whoa," and someone else said, "What." what was that and my instinct which um i hope wouldn't be the same now but my instinct then was i very quickly pressed delete on the second x and then pressed enter again so that it went away and the diagonal line y equals x came back but it was too late it's it kind of <laughs> everybody was saying what was that what, what happened there and um so we kind of ha- had this discussion where it was quite natural to see xx as very similar to 3x but where the the 3 was an x instead of a 3 so yes. it's like gradient was x now of course the gradient of y was x squared isn't x it's 2x and to think a bit about that but um as far as the, the pupils were concerned it was like the gradient wasn't a constant anymore it was this this variable they, they weren't talking in those sort of words but that's effectively what they were saying that as x gets bigger the gradient gets bigger so it curves up and it made me think this is actually it was unfortunate and I regretted it, but actually it was quite helpful. If you want to understand what a straight line is, and that the constant gradient is kind of what makes it straight, then seeing one where that's not the case, where the gradient isn't constant, maybe helps with that understanding. It's like a non-example of a straight line. Um, and so um, I think what I learned from it was sometimes you're only kind of one little slip or clumsy key press away from something interesting happening and in, in even the most boring lesson. And if you can find what that thing is, I mean, I didn't plan it, obviously, but um, maybe that's something that's that that is worth doing in a lesson on straight lines, throwing something that isn't. And so what's the difference? Why? Why isn't this straight? What's different about it um so sometimes these things that go on can be a bit fortuitous perhaps
0: that's it's fascinating that colin and you you, for me you've hit the nail on the head with that with the with the examples versus versus non-examples and i've I've become a bit obsessed over the last year with the with the power of examples and the importance of planning the examples that we give our students and Mm. that is something i've i've never considered with with straight lines I, i what i try and build into my practice these days is in the past i was terrible so in the past all the lines would be y equals two X plus one, y equals two x plus two. They, they'd always have the the coefficient, then x, then the the, the intercept afterwards. And now I'm a bit better that fairly early on, kids get exposed to lines that look like y equals three plus two x or y equals three minus x, just to get a bit a bit of variety there. But yeah, I've yes. never thought of putting an x as the coefficient in front of the x but it's perfect right because unless you do that kids are kids could quite easily generalize that it doesn't matter what's in front of that x you're always going to get a straight line that's that's good yeah. back, Colin. i like that
1: hmm. yeah it's interesting what you have because you've got because you were talking about like maybe having um examples of straight lines written in different forms like two yes. x plus three yes. y yes. equals 12 or something Um, and it's quite hard actually to recognize that all these things are straight lines even something like x equals 5 which is not in the form y equals mx plus c but it's a straight line I'm sure I've said to kids if it's not in the form if you can't rearrange it to the form y equals mx plus c then it's not a straight line but of course that's wrong isn't it you've got x equals things x equals a constant that that are not in that form so it's actually really quite a subtle thing what what is it that makes something a straight line and you can have stuff I've I've done things like 1 over x equals 1 over y What's that? Oh, um, yes, and it's, yeah. you know, even tick formals will think maybe it's a, a hyperbola or something, you know. And it is a straight line. It's got a point missing off it because X equals 0, Y equals 0. You can't have the origin. Um, but basically, it's a straight line. And just different ways of representing a straight line and seeing that all of these have got something the same about them. I think it's quite hard. And you do need the non-examples. And certainly Malcolm, um, thinking back to Malcolm again, was was brilliant at... at, at mixing up examples and non-examples and getting kids to sort them out.
0: It's, It's interesting, isn't it? Because when... When do you bring those in so if you're if you're introducing students to straight lines for the first time do you, do you want those non examples in early so that they don't form this this narrow incomplete understanding of, of what straight lines are versus what straight lines aren't, or do you want to kind of build their confidence and and being comfortable with dealing mm-hmm. with fairly straightforward straight lines before then you challenge their understanding with more complicated ones because there are kind of pros and cons to both and i'm I, I'm, I'm not mm. sure I'm settled on which which is the right way What well, what would your opinion yeah, be absolutely yeah I don't think you can answer
1: that in absolute can you but I mean just thinking about that example if you had a line like x equals three is that an easy example or a hard example yeah because in a way you could begin with with horizontal and vertical lines but actually the vertical ones don't fit the the form so it's not even that there's an obvious progression from easy to, to harder ones um, so yeah I think it's I think it's tricky um, I don't think there's an easy answer to that, but no. I think that maybe I've in the past erred towards keeping things simple too much and uh, too afraid that children be overwhelmed with things that don't fit when actually um, that's maybe kind of self-reinforcing kind of part of the problem. Um, if they always see things in a certain way, they think that it must always be like that.
0: You're right, you're right. And again, we're in danger of now turning this into a straight line graph special edition. <laughs> uh, but it, it's just made me think there that the, the classic way to introduce it, you're absolutely right, is is do a focus on the horizontal lines and the vertical lines first. But those vertical lines mess up everything, don't they? Because it's, 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 there's a natural progression from y equals 5 to then, all right, what happens when we introduce an x? What's y equals x plus 5? Now let's make that x negative. There's a natural variation happens there. But... That that x equals is it, it, it's a bit of an outlier, a bit of a either boundary example yes. or whatever you want to call it. And opening up with that can sometimes derail things. And I certainly don't think I've taught straight line graphs particularly well in the past. And, and I know that because a lot of my kids hate straight line graphs, whereas I absolutely love them. And I'm I'm now yeah reconsidering the order that I, I perhaps present those.
1: Mm-hmm. I guess it's the infinite gradient, isn't it, of the vertical yes. line? and it's a tricky concept. That. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: difficult, I'm, difficult. Yeah. Right, well, we we better move on from that. Otherwise, we're going to be on this okay. all day, which is which is <laughs> per, perfect for <laughs> yeah. me. Though, um, I want to talk now, uh, Colin, about mathematical etudes. Now, am I saying that right for a start? Because uh, I have no
1: idea. I say h, I... <laughs> but I just think either is fine.
0: <laughs> per, perfect. <laughs> now, just just to give you a bit of a background, where, where I came across these. So, I'm I'm obsessed by um, a thing that I call purposeful practice, and I, I think. We're talking about the same thing, but this, this will kind of come mm. to light um, as we go through this. But as I was doing a bit of research for um, a workshop and a, a book I'm actually doing about this kind of thing, I came, I came across um, firstly a couple of your research papers on it and then the the article that you wrote for Enrich and, and linked to a couple of problems from there. And I just thought, well, here's kind of he's kind of a kindred spirit here. He's he someone who's thinking along the same lines as me because I think, and I'm going to build this up into a massive anticlimax here. But I think these these are the the kind of. Um, the, the perfect activities, almost bridging the gap between regular routine, mundane practice and kind of rich problem solving. That, that's why I love them. But I wonder if you could talk me through however you want to start it, really, that the, the history of, of where, where you kind of came up with this idea, what the inspiration was and crucially, what, what do you mean by a, a mathematical etude? yeah okay well i guess
1: it was something i thought about when i was at nottingham and there's a big um, task design emphasis at nottingham and i think a lot of the tasks that we design are kind of focused on the conceptual um building connections between important ideas um introducing new ideas and concepts and so on and um it almost kind of felt like we weren't addressing the routine practice kind of side and i found that teachers um, that I spoke to that I really respected and who used a lot of rich tasks would say, well, you know, every now and then you have to have a boring lesson where you do some <laughs> practice, don't you? Otherwise they won't develop the kind of fluency they need. And I thought, that's right, but does it have to be through boring exercise? And so when I talked to people about designing tasks for fluency, sometimes people responded by saying, well, we've got exercises. that That's covered. Um, that We don't need more of those. We've got plenty of books of exercises. That's what you need. We need... Uh, which tasks for other things but i thought so much of classroom time is spent it seems to me doing procedural stuff dealing with kind of procedures that maybe in some cases we could argue how important is this procedure the kids really need to be able to do it but in other cases i think there would be a lot of agreement that there are important procedures kids need if they're going to go on to the next stage or if they're going to be able to problem solve and use um, procedures to to help them solve a problem um so where those procedures are important um does it have to be through kind of kill-and-drill exercises or can we find richer ways to address that so yeah purposeful practice sounds like exactly the the same kind of thing that that, that i'm interested in is your book out i haven't seen it
0: no uh, it's currently working on it and it's I'm currently okay. well i've finished it it's currently with chris bolton who's, who's probably ripping it apart as, as we speak actually so <laughs> oh, okay. if it survives that oh. process fingers crossed it'll be it'll be out soon but i wonder i wonder colin if uh, and i'll kind of talk about uh, why i really like these activities as we discuss this but I don't know if this is possible. Is it? But is it possible in the kind of audio medium that we're in here to to provide an example of, of a yeah. kind of activity that would fit under this category?
1: Yeah, I think so. I thought of one that's kind of um, audio. This is not original to me, and most of these are not original to me. They're they're things that I've kind of found, or that maybe that everybody knows about, but that I'm I think drawing attention or trying to draw attention to the um, the fluency side of it and how it can be used for that. So the one I think I would mention is um, say you want to practice multiplication of numbers, multiplication of integers um using standard algorithm or something um, you take the digits one to nine and the task is make two numbers using those digits once each that multiply together to give the biggest possible product um, and so uh, that's quite a hard task actually um, so you've got to decide how big how many digits to have in each number where to place the digits um, and you could use that task as not an etude so you could use that task you could take that kids could have calculators. And the point of that task is to learn about place value. And so you take away the the load of having to uh, do the procedure to do the multiplication and you just want them to focus on where they're placing the digits and looking for patterns and structure in their, their answers. So it doesn't have to be an etude. But if you used it uh, without calculators and there was a particular method you were wanting them to use to do their multiplications, then I would say that's an etude because. It's forcing them to use the particular procedure you want them to practice, but it's in a richer, more stimulating context where there's some kind of inquiry and creative thinking going on to kind of generate this the this solution.
0: Yeah, and I think for me, you, you've hit the nail on the head there. The, the thing that drew me to this, and and as I say, what I call purposeful practice is the fact that kids have to carry out the procedure, a specific mm. procedure that you need them to practice. And often you get a rich task work, which which are fantastic that kids can approach in many different ways. And that's that's seen as the strength of the task. And then you can have a great discussion. How did you take it on? How did you take it on? How did you take it on? Yes. But of course that that's all well and good and that certainly has a place. But if you want kids to develop fluency in a specific thing, you don't want them to take things on in different ways. And for me, that yes. that that is the strength of, of these tasks. Would you agree, Colin? Is that is that what kind of yeah? And I think that's where that's why
1: I went to the the analogy of of music really, because I know when I was learning to play the piano as a teenager, um, I used to have this. I used to kind of flirt with this idea that um, I didn't need to practice my scales as long as I played enough pieces of music that I enjoyed playing, a rich enough variety of them, I'd get some practice at all those techniques that I needed, wouldn't I? And it'd be much more fun. And um, that's not right i don't think any piano teacher would would say that that's okay you you have to do those exercises otherwise um you never get enough concentrated intensive practice on the particular things to improve on them because you get a little bit of scale in one piece but you just kind of uh, bluff your way through it and then it's gone and you're on to the next thing and you never get confronted with your weaknesses in that particular skill because there's so many other things going on at the same time and so i think the same with maths with rich maths tasks um they're fantastic and and a lot of time should be spent on them but they don't necessarily uh, give you the concentrated intensive practice on the particular procedures that you're weak on and in fact when you're doing problem solving part of what you should do is tailor your approach to your strengths and weaknesses so if you have a particular weakness it makes sense when you're solving a problem to avoid it and use a different approach that's kind of good problem solving skill but it doesn't if, if that task was being used by the teacher in order to target that particular thing then the tasks failed pedagogically So I think that, you know, algebra is the classic one, isn't it? You devise a nice task and you think this has a lovely approach, a lovely algebraic approach that kids could use. And, of course, nobody uses algebra. They all (laughs) try numbers or find some other way. And from a problem-solving point of view, if you know that algebra is is your weakness, that makes sense. And and that's worth discussing when you're looking back over a problem-solving lesson and saying, well, you knew that you were strong on, on this and you used that to help you solve the problem. That's great. But actually, if we care about kids learning algebra, but then we need tasks where they can't dodge that and they have to do it. So the the thing in music was these these etudes these pieces that are designed yes to be beautiful pieces of music but to give you that concentrated practice all the way through on a particular skill that you can't avoid. Um I think that's I think that's really important. And um and people listen to etudes you know on their on their uh, uh on their phones without knowing that they're etudes just because they think they're lovely pieces of music and so it shouldn't be impossible to combine the two if it isn't impossible in music why should it be impossible in maths
0: absolutely and i i think the the first one of these activities that i saw from you was was in one of one of your your research papers that, that i'll link to on your on your website and I'll, I'll link to them in the show notes and it's the lovely one and this, this definitely doesn't work over audio but i'll, I'll try my best <laughs> It's the the lovely one about solving equations where you you've essentially got um, four things in each of the corners of, of a square, so you may have two three x plus one two minus x and, and another expression, and then you 've got six six lines joining up these various uh, four corners and they solve six equations and students have to solve these uh, solve these uh, six equations. And the beautiful thing about it is the solutions of them are in an arithmetic sequence. I think even the consecutive numbers in the original ones, maybe. x Yeah, one, two, three, three, four, five, six. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so for what and then. So it's just beautiful because for a start, there is no way kids can complete that activity without practicing solving equations. So that's the first kind of big tick for me. But then so they're getting that routine practice. They're getting a nice variety of practice as well, because not all the equations are in the same form. Some have got a variable on both sides. Some have got like three. Minus x, or one minus x, or whatever it would be, but then once they've solved it, it then just begs so many questions. And I I did this with some with some teachers relatively recently, and it was amazing because all I had to say was, okay, can you design? Can you design your own setup where the solutions? Firstly, even just. Come up with six whole numbers, mm. and it 's really tricky, but tricky mm. in a great way, because by the end of it they 've solved about thirty or forty equations and they 've really had chance to think about the nature of equations and what produces an integer and what doesn 't produce an integer and it 's this whole thing as well that i 'm a massive fan of about predictions and expectations and having those predictions confirmed or not confirmed and kid, kids or students or teachers in this case are getting this routine practice but in a context that is, I don't know if engaging is the right word, but maybe motivating, maybe more interesting to them. But they're practicing exactly what you want them to practice, but developing these wider notions of inquiry, problem solving and all that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, I'm completely sold on these, Colin. And uh, but I guess my my question to you, well, a couple of questions, really. Can these completely replace drills and extended practice, do you think?
1: Yeah, that's that's an interesting one because I think it then depends what you mean by exercises because I tend to use phrases like boring exercises, traditional exercises, standard exercises because I don't really want to take issue with people who design nice exercises. I think there are nice exercises and I think there's ways to use variation theory to build really interesting exercises that tell a story, that make a point, that are worth talking about and discussing as a unit. I kind of think for me the test is after... Kids have worked on an exercise. Is there something worth discussing about that exercise, or are they just kind of random individual questions? And so I think there are interesting exercises, and I, uh, maybe you could call those attitudes. I don't know, um, but they're they're certainly things that I think have a place in the classroom. So I, I'm not really against all exercises, but I suppose I'm taking issue with the kind of uh, the tedious exercises that just go on and on, and where when you finish one you move to the next one and you could do every other one or you could just stop at any point when you ran out of time and it wouldn't matter. The ones that kind of have no bigger picture. I wonder whether we do need those and whether actually we could find better tasks and, and, and ditch those kinds of things.
0: That's nice. Um, I can't see what they would offer. That no. wouldn't. And I love that I love that way of almost judging whether it's good or not that you've said there is there anything worth discussing at the end of it? I think that's a really nice kind of just simple criteria to keep in mind when when planning exercises because i've been guilty of this so many times i've just if uh, i mean to take a rubbish example if i've taught my kids fractions of an amount i will literally just pick 10 random questions on fractions of an amount there'll be no link between question one and question two question two and question three and so on there's no development there there's no connections there's no expectations formed or anything like that and at the end of it as you as you've rightly said there there's there's nothing to discuss it's can you do them can't you do them? Which ones did you get right? Which ones did you get wrong? Right, let's move on. But I think you're right. I think you can de- design using the principles of variation theory. You can design sequences of examples or exercises that yeah have have a bit more to them. But it's difficult, isn't it, Colin? So that's what I was going to ask you as well. Like even just writing ten well sequenced examples, I find incredibly challenging. But coming up with yeah. these these activities they're hard hey like i don't know have you, any yeah. advice or, or thoughts about them mm.
1: well i think the other thing i was thinking while you were talking is about the people who <clears throat> are close to mastering um a procedure and how uh boring and demotivating it can be to be told to do 10 of them anyway yes um, and i think in all of these scenarios that we've been talking about there are ways to extend. I mean like with the, the one you the, the one you were talking about, the equations one. Um, what sets of six numbers can be generated by yes. four expressions in that arrangement? Could you make the set of numbers one, 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 two, for example, or would that be impossible? And so, you know, on that sort of level I find working with teachers there's there's loads to think about. I had somebody using group theory to try and kind of solve that. And so the it's kind of the sky's the limit for taking it off in directions and then your attention is kind of shifted away from the mechanics of how to solve an equation because you've you've already got that and so that's moved to the background and now you're really thinking about what's going on here what's the structure of this um, and i think even with the digits one to nine one um uh, you can start with digits one to three actually if you want a very accessible way in um you can include more digits you can talk about or how would I make the smallest possible number? Um, That's quite a good test of whether you've understood what you've done in making the largest one. Um, And all those kinds of things, there's a a natural way to extend without the teacher having to hand out another sheet or something, just to say, well, uh, there are kind of easy ways to to take it a little bit further, and that's one of the things that I I kind of like about these sort of tasks. Um, But to answer your question um, about how do you get them, well, I think there are a lot out there, actually. I think if you went through something like the Enrich website, you could probably categorise a lot of the tasks there as being this sort of task. Um, and maybe it's not just about inventing loads of these. Maybe it's about kind of curating them, bringing them together somewhere so that people can find them when that's the sort of thing they're looking for. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, th- yeah the best, the best way is to kind of steal them from other people who've already uh, developed the ideas and maybe... Adapt them and try and improve them a bit, but um... I, I
0: think you're right. I think because I think my kind of top source is definitely enrich, uh, definitely uh, Don Stewart's median blog. Mm. And again, it's it's the same with with Don Stewart and enrich. Not all the tasks would fit into this category um, of, of yes. attitude or purpose or practice. But you've got to look for them and sometimes you've got to modify them a little bit. But yeah, definitely that. And also open middle problems as well. I I think a lot Mm. of those can kind of fit into this this category as well. But just thinking back to what you said there, Colin, would that would that be your preferred form of differentiation then? So every child essentially working on the same task, but kids, I don't know if this is the right way of saying it, but kids accessing it at different levels or kids taking it further than other students. Would that be effective differentiation for you?
1: That's always my ideal, I think. Um, And I don't think that has to be that the child decides. I think uh, sometimes children won't uh, uh, push themselves enough or might uh, be too ambitious. And I think there's a lot of place for the teacher to be guiding about, uh, you know, like with the expression polygons that you talked about, solving equations um, task, starting with a triangle, just three expressions is a much more accessible way to start. Um, And so I think... Uh, the teacher has a, a big role there to, to make sure that kids are working on tasks that are appropriate. Um, so I'm not saying kids have to decide all that for themselves. That can be really difficult in these sorts of tasks when they don't quite know why you're asking them the task necessarily, or they don't quite know what, what might come out of it um, in the way that the teacher does. Um, but I do think that having everybody working on the same task in some sense, certainly the same context, um makes it much easier if you want to have discussion at the end and want to work as a whole class because um we all know what this is about even though we've done different things on it rather than having three different tasks and then it can can make it very difficult to to really feel that this is one class and we've got we've done something together today
0: yeah, I, I fully I fully agree with that, and I wonder. So we, we've talked a little bit about um, exercises and, and and different kind of strengths of exercises and, and ones you prefer. What what about kind of drills or or rote learning or or again however you want to label it, but the but the principle of just and this is a terrible way of saying it, but kind of hammering into kids' heads, things like times tables or number bonds or something like that, or even um, negative number operations, presenting kids with questions, (laughs) And maybe under timed pressure, maybe not under time pressure, but the idea being to develop this automaticity that's going to free up capacity and working memory so kids can solve more complex things. But doing it in a way that is very much not in necessarily any context, not in a logical sequence of examples, but is pure drill, pure rote learning. Do, does that have a place at all, Colin, for you?
1: Um, that's, that's difficult. That's difficult. So I think you've you've put together a lot of things that are maybe for me a little bit different from one another um so for facts multiplication tables number bonds and stuff yeah i think absolutely i would if you can memorize facts like that then memorize them They're, they're extremely useful and um I mean, I enjoyed, I really enjoyed memorising things when I was in school. I memorised things for the sake of it, which is kind of a bit weird. I remember <laughs> memorising dates that things happened, and I didn't actually know what the things were, you know. <laughs> you know, Battle of Waterloo, 1815. I had no idea who fought in the Battle of Waterloo <laughs> or who won or anything. It was just kind of something I'd memorise. And I still remember all those dates now. And I kind of think, what's the point of that? I, there was something about me that wanted to, to kind of internalize stuff and capture it and it is kind of useful even just knowing those things sometimes when somebody mentions a certain date and you think oh that's when this was happening or that changed it gives you a bit of a uh, of a grounding and i think similarly with uh with tables and things if if somebody says 49 and you immediately think oh that's seven sevens that's really helpful and no amount of being able to work out seven times seven uh quickly it will replace being able to go the other way and say 49 is a special number in a way that uh, you know that, uh, that others aren't around there so I think having those things internalised is really important whether it's worth spending massive amounts of classroom time on that at the expense of something else that's that's an issue I think only the teacher who knows the kids can answer um, because for some kids it does seem like things go in and then come out almost immediately and you can keep on going on and on with particularly like, like tables and they spend years and years learning them and still don't don't know them um i think for me the difference between memorizing things and trying to do things in memorable ways is quite helpful um you know they talk about flashbulb memory where certain things happen uh, that you'll just never forget without trying you know even if you tried really hard you wouldn't forget them they're just uh, will stick in your mind forever um and i think if we can devise lessons tasks activities that have that memora- memorable character to them um that feels quite different from the kind of uh closing your eyes and trying to memorize things um but i do think I think memory is really important and I think Having stuff in long-term memory, I mean, trig identities, those things, just knowing them and and just having them immediately come to mind makes such a difference if you're trying to to solve something than saying, oh, I think there might be an identity like this and scanning through a list of them for one that might match. It's a completely different different way of thinking, I think. So, yeah, I'm not as against, I mean, rote learning is is kind of a loaded phrase and no one wants to say that they're in favour of rote learning. But I do think if you can remember stuff that's useful. I suppose um, just to go the other way, because I can kind of argue on both sides of this, um, I've sat at the back of classrooms where teachers say things like, uh, What do we always do with fractions? And I'm sitting at the back thinking, I have no idea what the answer to that is. And yet half the kids put their hands up and have the right answer. Or, uh, What's the first kind of fraction addition that there is? I think first kind are the different yeah. kinds. And for some, for some ways of, of teaching, there's kind of like type one, the denominators are the same. Type two, one denominator is a multiple of the other. Type yes. three and so on. And you've kind of broken this down into some system. And I feel like memorizing somebody's arbitrary system of stuff that may actually have uh, weaknesses in it and not be that amazing, in my opinion, uh, feels like a, the wrong thing to be doing to kids, making them memorize stuff like that. Whereas things that are kind of what I see as absolute truths like 7, 8 56, I have no problem with kids being asked to memorise. So I think maybe I'd draw the distinction there.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, no, that's very interesting, Colin. And I wonder, just to kind of flip it the other way around then, does does problem solving that is not in the form of a a mathematical um, etude, so problem solving where... Again, kids can take things on in, in numerous different ways. They're perhaps not getting the same level of, or the same amount of, of practice of, of the development of fluency that they would under one of the activities that you've described. Does, does that kind of problem solving task, the kind that you probably see a bit more commonly um, across the Enrich website and, mm-hmm. and on numerous other websites, does that have a place? And if, and if so, what place is it?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think that should be the main thing. And I think HD shouldn't be the main thing. Um, I've, I've designed etudes because I think that they meet a need that that uh, is there and is often met in quite dull ways with exercises. But really the main thing about doing maths shouldn't be doing etudes, it should be problem solving. And the etudes are some of the preparation that can help you get you to a point where your procedures are fluent enough to be able to use them in a problem solving context. But the real doing maths for me is about tackling unfamiliar problems where you don't know what techniques you might need to draw on and therefore you need a, um, a strong bank of different approaches that you can use. And so for me teaching problem solving is about how do you select from that toolbox of techniques that you've got, how do you choose what might be helpful? here? What are the the indications in a problem as to what could be useful? Because it's easy to give these generic problem-solving strategies like draw a diagram. Well, and then kids say, well, what diagram? How how can I know what kind of diagram would help here? How how do I know um, uh, try and solve a simpler problem first? It's a very useful heuristic, isn't it? If you're stuck on a problem, solve a simpler one. But how do I know what would be simpler? I mean, I've seen kids with, you know, if they're integrating something, sixth form as integrating uh, if you've got something like x cubed minus one, all square rooted multiplied by x squared you know, it's one of these where if you see what you're doing, you can just undo it. You can yes. do a kind of reverse differentiation thing. But if you try to simplify that question, you might say, "Well, let's take off the x squared at the front because <laughs> yes. uh, we've got two factors there. It's complicated. Let's just do the x cubed minus one square rooted. Let's just do that bit first. That's that looks like a simplification, but you end up with an integral that's I think is probably intractable or extremely difficult if it's if it's not. Um, but it's perfectly reasonable for someone who's learning this to think that that would be a simpler problem and I think there are lots of examples of that where how, how do you simplify a problem if you if you don't have an in-depth kind of sense of what's going on so I think it's not always obvious to the novice what would constitute a simplification um, in a sense if you knew what was going to be simpler then you'd be able to solve the problem without simplifying it so I think all these things are problem solving strategies that are really powerful but they have to be worked on in a context and Maybe they don't transfer that very that well from kind of one problem to another, and so I think generic problem-solving skills are really difficult because it's not like today I learned how to simplify things um, in some kind of abstract sense. It's kind of almost a different a different task for for different problems. Um, I mean, so to please, your oh, sorry, sorry, go on. No, go on.
0: No, no, please, 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 go I was on. just going
1: to say to answer your question, I do think problem-solving should be the main the main activity, and the attitudes are a means to an end, not an end in themselves.
0: I mean, this this is fascinating, Colin, because I, I didn't know where you were going to go with this when, when it came to problem solving. Cause I've, I have some kind of definite views on this that, that have changed quite a bit over the last 12 months. I am now of the same mind that I don't, well, how best to say this, I don't think generic problem solving skills like the ones you've described there, draw a picture, solve a simpler problem, the, the classic kind of pol- polio ones yeah. that you see on posters and stuff. I think I think they're pretty useless for a lot of students because as you say on but I'll I'll be specific why I think they're useless if you say to students solve a simpler problem unless they know that, unless they have kind of domain specific knowledge unless they've got an in-depth knowledge of the concepts involved in the problem and then how on earth can they simplify it in an effective way even draw a picture Again, what are they going to draw a picture of unless they've got a deep knowledge of of, of the subject and, and the topic as a whole? I think they can they they can be useful, but I think in the hands of the novice, and I, I'm glad you kind of used the term novice, because this is something myself and Andrew Blair d- disagreed with a, a little bit and novice versus expert and all this. But if, if we just mm. use the term novice temporarily, how do you get, Colin, novices to the stage where they can solve problems? Because in the past I, I've been of the mind that to solve a problem first you've got to know what the questions asking second you've got to devise um, a strategy to solve it and then third you've got to carry out that strategy but I found kids really struggle with the first two stages of that they, they struggle to know what a, que- a problems asking and I think that's tied to a lack of, of, of knowledge I think it comes down to a, a lack of what I would call domain-specific knowledge to carry out a strategy I think to know what strategy to use and be able to carry out effectively again I think that's kind of in intimately tied to knowledge. Whereas in the past, I kind of believed that just regularly exposing kids to problems would enable them to develop kind of a magic problem-solving skill that they that they then could apply to all problems and, and become the problem-solvers I wanted them to be. But I'm not convinced that's the case. So h- how mm. do we help our novice learners become problem-solvers?
1: Mm. No, I agree. I, I think it's really hard. And I think that <clears throat> part of the problem for me is that, Problems are often, uh, people think if you teach problem-solving, you have to have some massive problem that is uh, intricate and has loads of layers. And then to work your way around a problem-solving title probably takes more than a lesson. Yes. And so um, it's kind of stretches out and all kinds of things happen. I think having seen problem-solving as being valid with much smaller problems there's the problems in the sense that the student doesn't have a ready-made method for solving them but they're not necessarily one that's going to take a very long time you can do problem solving in a kind of a 15 minute task maybe and then there's more time to to look back and reflect on it i mean what i've learned from we've worked with some colleagues from japan on on teaching problem solving and one of the things they say is that the lesson begins when the problem's solved um and Uh, what they mean is that the real learning happens in the looking back in terms in terms where you look back over what you've done and you compare different strategies so somebody did it this way someone did it that way why, why did that work out the way it did um and i think um t- seeing that as the important bit not the five minute rushed kind of cleaner at the end where we say what did we learn today but really kind of unpicking and maybe just actually having doing part of the problem solving cycle Um, And not thinking we have to go all the way around and that the main thing is to get the answer. But maybe say, let's focus on formulating a problem. Um, Maybe we'll solve it another day. But today, let's just think about how do you formulate a problem? How do you take the information here and and put it together in a way that makes sense? What are the variables that you need to identify? What are the relationships between those variables? What are the assumptions you might need to make to, to, to tackle this problem? And just do that. And that's enough. And you could learn something about how to formulate a problem. Um, but if you then immediately rush on to do the next bit, then what tends to maybe stick in kids' mind is the kind of uh, the analysis stage where you kind of do the, the sums and use the procedures. And that seems like the important bit. But actually, like you were just saying, it's often those early stages of getting into it that are, that are really difficult.
0: It's fascinating this because, so I've I've been very influenced by, by cognitive load theory recently and, and, and John Sweller's work. And a big mm. part of that, Sweller would say, and I, I'm probably getting the quote slightly wrong, but I, I think I'm paraphrasing it fairly accurately, that students can be engaged in problem solving for, for long periods of time and not actually learn anything because yeah. his argument would be, that, um firstly, they could experience cognitive overload if they don't have the um, the relevant uh, domain specific knowledge available in long term memory to free up space in working memory, but I think more interestingly, the point he 's making is that unless you 've got deep domain specific knowledge then you find it hard to almost appreciate the global features of the problem. You get so entrenched in the minutia. So if to take an example, if it was um, some kind of interesting problem involving addition of fractions, for example, unless students were fluent or, or have automated or have accessible, the knowledge of how to add fractions together, they will get so bogged down in Trying to add individual fractions, that they fail to notice the relationship that you want them to spot, or a connection, or a shortcut, or something like that. And at the end of the day, they've spent twenty minutes, thirty minutes working on this problem, but they've not actually learnt any of the wider skills that we hoped would kind of come for this problem, because their domain-specific knowledge was lacking. So w- after I read that, I, th- I found myself agreeing with that, and I found myself reaching the conclusion that those kind of problems should only be used with students once they've. Reached a certain amount of expertise or a certain have acquired a certain amount of knowledge to be able to really fully benefit from those problems to enable them to spot the connections and spot the global relationships as opposed to being bogged down in the in the minutiae of the detail would that be something you'd agree with colin or is it or is it a bit more s- subtle than that
1: well i kind of find myself agreeing with it but also feeling really uneasy because yeah that yes. could be a way of keeping kids away from problem solving yes. it? you're not ready yet you haven't shown me that you're good enough at these procedures so you can't have this problem yet um and that can be putting up barriers that maybe mean some kids just never get access and kind of your lower attaining students are never ready for problem solving you're waiting for them to be ready they're still not ready um, so i think what i was trying to do with the etudes was saying um uh, even when you haven't developed fluency in this procedure you can engage in something that involves problem solving and that could be a good way of developing that fluency so um so people sometimes ask me with the etudes do they have to practice the skill first um and no the whole point is the etude's not meant to be an extra thing you do if you've got some spare time it's meant to replace the exercises so yes you have to teach the procedure first the they're not going to discover how to solve equations by doing the equations etude but as soon as they've as soon as they know how to do that procedure and they now the moment when you would say now go and practice it instead you say do this etude and so um i guess this is disagreeing slightly because i i think that it is possible to 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 problem solve in a meaningful way so long as there's a low enough entry to the to the task so that your initial task could be to solve the equation generated by the two expressions at the top of the diagram um that's really just an exercise, isn't it? It's just saying solve this equation. And so it shouldn't be any harder to do that than it would be just to do the first question out of an exercise. And so I kind of feel there's a low entry there. You can just solve those six equations. It's not really significantly different from solving the first six questions from an exercise, but it's within a context that then can lead you on to something more
0: um yeah, I think Give I think like I think I, I I mean I find myself fully agreeing with you Colin. I, um and I think the attitudes are a, are that perfect bridge between practice and the the more open-ended or unstructured problem solving and can to a certain extent replace that practice because you are getting practice within the task i guess my issue or my concern that i've been thinking about is is the rich tasks that aren't etudes the ones that don't have this discipline and, and don't almost compel kids to practice a specific procedure i'm now less inclined to use those until kids have have opportunity to practice and to develop that fluency because whereas in the past i almost thought i could do a two-for-one job where i could get kids developing the skills on the job whilst they're solving a problem unless it's an etude or a purposeful practice that's where they're getting plenty of opportunity if it's another type of problem where i can't guarantee they're going to get that opportunity I don't think they achieve either. I don't think they gain the fluency and I don't think they gain some ability to solve problems. I think for kids mm. to take advantage of, of these more open-ended unstructured problems that don't have the, the, the natural fluency built into them, for kids to really take advantage and benefit from those, I think they need the background knowledge beforehand. <laughs>
1: I think you're right. I mean, we're sometimes talking, talking about a two year rule that if you want to like, like in, in languages, if you want to use vocabulary fluently in speaking another language, you kind of it can't be the vocabulary you've just learned last week. It's the vocabulary that's embedded a little bit. Yes. Um, and so if we want kids to problem solve using procedures, then it's, I've, I've heard people say, well, it, it, make it something they learned two years ago. Um, and it's still challenging because the challenge isn't from. How do I make this procedure work properly? but it's about uh selecting that procedure and using it in the context of the problem. so don't expect people to to use things fluently that they've only just learned. Um, so, yeah, I think I'm agreeing with you. I think um, I I am. think for me, the problem with problem solving lessons is that the way you tend to set it up, the way I tend to set it up with kids is to say, right, today we're going to solve this problem. Let's see if we can work out a way to do it. Here's the problem. Off you go. And so from the children's point of view, it's all about getting the answer to that problem. Yes. When actually as the teacher, the answer I probably don't care about very much. If I say, can you find all the nets of a cube? Find out how many nets of a cube there are. The fact that the answer is 11 is of no consequence yes. to me at all. Um, it's not the kind of thing. It's not the kind of knowledge I even think I had in my head until I started teaching. Um, That fact that it's 11 is of no importance. But to the children, they're trying to find out how many nets there are. So they're drawing them. Is there another one? Oh, is that the same as that one? I'll cross that out. So their focus is a little bit different from mine because mine is about uh, it's not about solving the problem. It's about learning something about problem solving. And it's quite hard, I think, for kids to realize that because if you ask them, what are you doing? They would say, well, I'm trying to find all the nets of a cube. Um, And that's perfectly reasonable. But actually, uh, my focus is different. And I think that that's an uneasy uh, issue for me with problem solving. It's not about solving the problem. And it doesn't matter in a way if they've only found 10 and they haven't found the last one. That's not the critical thing. The important thing is what... What processes have you gone through? What approaches have you taken? How have you ruled out some as being duplicates? Or how have you been systematic to make sure you didn't miss any? Those are the problem solving skills that I kind of wanted them to learn.
0: And I think I've not always been good at communicating to kids about what, why we're actually doing this. Yes, that, that's very interesting. Um- and I wonder as well, Colin, and this may be an impossible question, but you've, you kind of outlined earlier on a, a really nice kind of criterion to, to apply to, to judge whether an exercise is good. And that's if when kids have finished it, is there a, does, is there a pattern to spot or is there a question to ask or, or something to discuss, which I think was really nice. I wonder. In these problem-solving activities that aren't the etudes, so aren't the ones that have the the, the kind of practice and fluency built in, but that you still feel are important. Is there a similar set of criteria that you use when weighing up whether those are good activities? Is there anything in particular that helps you distinguish between good problem-solving activities versus bad ones?
1: I think it's very dependent on what the kids bring and what they know. So example I often use is, um, you know, if you had a, a task that was about finding the distance between two points on a coordinate grid, if you've never thought about that as having anything to do with Pythagoras, it's never occurred to you that that could be thought of as the hypotenuse of a right-angled triangle, then working all that out is kind of a, quite a nice problem solving task. How would we find the distance from here to here? Can you work out any way of doing it? But if, If that's been formalized as a method, so if kids have been given a formula even, you know, then it's it's not a problem solving task at all. So I think for me, the distinction isn't really good and bad problem solving. It's it's either problem solving or not problem solving. It's either this is a familiar routine that they're meant to to know or this is something that they that they are not expected to have come across before. Um, And. Uh, and part of that is where the kids have forgotten things as well, because you might say, well, we, we did this last year. But if they don't remember that, then you might as well not have done it last year. So you can problem solve with things that they have been taught. It's about whether it's kind of available, accessible to them um, as they approach the problem. But I think my, my focus in looking at problems is kind of with the kids in mind. Uh, how are they going to come at this are they going to say oh i remember we did something on this but i'm not sure how to do it that suggests to me it's not really a problem solving task or are they going to look at it and think oh, i don't know what to do could we maybe use this then that feels more like a problem solving task um, but i think if it's problem solving that's potentially it's potentially good it's how you how it's used by the teacher and how the kids approach it
0: that's, that's really interesting. That And uh, the, the last question, Colin, I want to ask you on problem solving before before we move on to, to something else. And again, I don't know if I'm going to articulate this right, but it's something I've only noticed myself in the last couple of months. And that's um, so it's a classic um, curse of knowledge. And I think this is a, a big problem for for all teachers. The fact that we are we are experts. A lot of us like maths. Um, and I certainly, um, certainly earlier on in my career, but still now, sometimes struggle to to predict how students are going to relate to to, to problems, and and they're, they're often different to how I would. And I see this whenever I kind of run a workshop for teachers, or I'm I'm working with with other colleagues, and we'll go through a problem, and teachers will be loving it, and it's going down really really well, and they're all dead excited to use it with their kids the next day. And then they use it with the kids the next day and it just doesn't go down as well. Um, And I just wonder, firstly, is is this something you've experienced? Well, when you run workshops or you speak to teachers, do you sometimes find that the reaction from the teachers is better or more positive than the reaction when you would do a similar activity with students? And if so, or even if not, do you have any advice about how teachers can kind of prepare better to, to deliver problem solving activities to students, if that makes sense?
1: Yes. Well, yes, certainly. I mean, teachers are a great audience, aren't they? Not only are they <laughs> mathematically knowledgeable, but they tend to be willing to talk to each other. And, yes. uh, you know, they're, 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 a, they're a wonderful audience. And I think if any teacher's sitting there thinking that this is what their lessons should be like, then... Um, they're going to be very hard on themselves because <laughs> kids, kids are not like that. They're not. I mean, even with teachers, teachers are great, but teachers that come on a Saturday morning to do a session, you yes. know, are likely to be quite keen and motivated, and, and and they're kind of determined to get something out of it. So even if you do a really bad session they probably go away thinking that was great because they met other teachers <laughs> and they discussed things so so I, I think doing pd sessions is is a very privileged thing and um you, you I, I i certainly don't think i'd ever had classes that were quite you know that responded so uh and and teachers talk about the pedagogy as well and i think it can make you feel that um uh that everything's going well because they're getting they're talking about insights into how they teach this and they're talking about kids they would use it with so yes I think it's unfair for teachers to think that, that that's what they should expect to happen when they go to their classroom with it the next day um, uh, so yes I think that can be an unfair thing that we do when we're presenting PD is that we, we we give the task to the teachers as though this is how we present it to students when actually often we might present it quite differently um, so like with my expressions polygon task Um, Would I just dump that on the board and say solve those six equations and see what happens? Uh, Maybe with some classes, but other classes, it might be much more structured introduction. You might begin with a reminder about solving equations and how that works and uh, what do we know about equations and and do a bit of a recap before you start. And all those sorts of scaffolding type things um, that you wouldn't feel the need to do with teachers. Um, So, yeah, and there will be kids that just don't like these tasks um, and would rather do some exercises. And I've certainly come across that, um, particularly uh, sixth form students who have been successful with exercises in the past. They're used to exercises. And there's maybe and one of my reservations with the etudes is that maybe the exercises perhaps give you a bit more autonomy because you know exactly what you're practicing. You're kind of in control of it. You say, "Yep, I'm going to do five more of these. If I get them all right, I think I'm probably OK on that and I'll move on. There's a kind of control that certainly older students might have. Whereas with the etude, they think, why are you asking me to do this? What's what's yes. behind this? And I think I have a good rationale for what's behind it. But that's kind of in my head. Um, and sometimes there's a surprise in tasks that you don't want to re- reveal beforehand. And so, again, that can be fun, but it can also maybe take away a bit from, from students' autonomy. So I've I found I've had to use tasks quite differently with older students who want to be more involved in what's going on. They don't want me to say, right today we're going to do this look at this There's a kind of implicit trust me something interesting will come out of this um maybe there's a place for that but maybe older students particularly want uh, to know what am i going to get out of doing this task Why, why should i engage with this
0: that's really interesting Okay, Colin, so what I want to talk to you next um, is something that I'm, I'm a little bit obsessed with at the moment, and that's this idea of confidence. And I know it's something that, that interests you too. So I thought mm. maybe the, the best way to, to tee this up is just to tell you one practice that I that I've started doing recently with my kids. And then perhaps you can share your understanding of of the importance of confidence and and the practical ways that that we can harness this. Because what what I've started doing now is um, every time I give uh, kids a series of activities to do or sorry, a series of exercises or practice questions, or even if we're marking a low stakes quiz or a homework in class, before we go through the answers, I'll ask students just to put a little confidence score out of 10 next to each question. Um, just to indicate how confident they feel, the higher the number, the more confidence and so on. And then when I project up the answers and they mark the quiz or the questions themselves, I say to them, right, any questions that you've got wrong, I want you just to have a look at the confidence score that you put. And I want you to start thinking about the ones you got wrong that you were confident you got right first. And this kind of ties into my understanding of the hypercorrection effect and also a lot of the work about on forming expectations then having those expectations kind of confirmed or denied. And for me, it's just been a very simple tool week I've made but it seems to be paying dividends firstly with kids really paying more attention to their answers a lot more and also being a lot more engaged in the kind of correction and discussion process so that's what I've been doing but I I wonder Mm. why does confidence interest you Colin and what's your understanding of of how the mechanisms work
1: yeah that's very interesting that sounds like uh, it's quite close to what I've been trying so I've been trying the same thing but actually making their scores on the test uh, reflect their confidence ratings so the score they get for each question would be um either positive the confidence rating or negative the confidence rating depending on whether it's right or wrong um so that they're kind of incentivized to be uh, as truthful as they can about their confidence um on each item and so this is it's a much finer grained confidence than saying are you confident in maths which i don't think is is very meaningful what i'm interested in is um not so much how they they feel globally about maths but um for example i mean it all started for me with negative numbers i saw a lesson where um uh the, the problem was three multiplied by negative two and the child said it's either six or negative six <laughs> and the teacher said well which do you think it is and the child said negative six the teacher said good guess <laughs> um and uh, uh i thought uh Because the only problem kids make with multiplying directed numbers, really, either they don't know the tables or they just get plus or minus... The wrong way around yes and so there's only kind of two possibilities for that question and so uh, i think guessing guessing I've, i'm kind of ambivalent about it. there's times when you want kids to predict what's going to happen you want them to uh, to have a guess to make a stake on something and then see what happens but it's kind of the, the, the it comes before something else so you then have some kind of reasoning and justification and thinking and so on um i think guessing is a final answer um is unhelpful and in terms of formative feedback it's it's confusing for the teacher if you're trying to make sense of a uh, of a response from a student is there some kind of misconception or something when actually maybe it's just a complete guess and so disincentivizing guessing was was kind of what i wanted to do and i thought within this context of directed numbers an actual way to do that is to to use directed numbers in the scoring and say <laughs> well you can get positive uh, or negative depending on your confidence rating so it's like it's like staking something on that answer and saying oh i'll put a 10 and i think the, the discussions with kids afterwards are really interesting when they say oh i put a 10 on that i wish i'd only put a zero or a one or something um why did you put a 10 on it well i was really sure why, why were you so sure about that um it could be really interesting and also the ones that they 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 get right and they say i wish i'd put more on that one." Oh, why didn't you well i thought maybe it was this instead oh okay and i think it's opened up some discussions with kids but i think um what i'm interested in is whether over a period of time if you use this kind of confidence assessment approach whether kids would get better calibrated whether they would the, the match between how confident they are and how correct they are would get closer and closer um so i did a study but it was just across individual lessons um using this and the kids were, were happy with it as a method because so I thought it's kind of negative marking. I thought the kids might object and uh, and not like it, but very few did. The vast majority uh, thought it was good. Some said it was um, uh, made them think more or that they, um, uh, that they were consciously not guessing um, answers and leaving more blanks, which could be seen as a negative, but I would see that as a positive if they're leaving blanks because... Uh, putting zero because they're not sure because they can still put down whatever answer they think it is, but um, they can state nothing on it if ah, they really yes. feel it's a shot in the dark. So I feel it gives more information for the teacher. Um, but what I haven't done yet and would like to is see what kind of what effects there might be over time. Um, cause it's really easy to implement. I mean, like you're, you're saying in the way you described it, you don't need new assessments or anything, uh, no new resources. You just take whatever test you're going to use and you just ask them to write down a confidence rating beside each answer. That's,
0: that's really interesting That and I guess as well what I've certainly found is there's two kind of added benefits the first is that I think it makes kids, it gets them more involved in the process and also makes them think more about each one of their answers. It takes them off autopilot. And the way I do it where after they've answered the questions, I then get them to go back and assign the confidence score. The reason I do it that way is it's every time I say to kids, check your work, I might as well be wasting my breath because they they, they never do. Whereas if I say now go and assign your confidence scores, it gets them to go back, look again at their answer, think, oh, why did I put that answer? And so on. So i like that and the way mm. you're describing it colin i wonder as well if there's going to be kind of a long-term metacognitive benefit in the fact that kids are going to start to when they come to revise or whatever if they can focus first on the high negative scores those ones that they assigned with a high confidence and got wrong and then move then on to the ones that they were kind of simply guessing at and got the score or, or got the scores of zero it it again it's more information for the child about where they should start the revision as opposed to right i've got that question wrong let me start there it, it's just informing yes. them a bit it's it's informing them a bit more about their way of thinking and their misunderstandings if that makes sense
1: yes yes it's interesting because sometimes kids will get 10 out of 10 and they've put um, a confidence score of 10 for the first five and five or something for the next five yes and so there's extra information there isn't there because they're clearly not guessing they've got all the answers right it's very unlikely that they really guess them and kids will sometimes say i just guessed when you ask them because they're not sure how to explain what they did but uh, they didn't guess because it wasn't a wild guess anyway was it and so why why are you less sure about those and maybe uh, without any other intervention maybe just seeing that week by week you keep getting things right but you only put a five on them maybe that five will, will shift up to a six or something as people start to think well actually I'm better at this than I think I am um, so I'm just interested to see what what happens over time what you're, what you're doing sounds very close to this and I think the, the idea of putting the confidence scores in afterwards is, is something I might steal because that does sound quite helpful what I've been trying to get them to do is put confidence next to each answer as they go maybe that's in terms of cognitive load maybe that's
0: i don't know um, yeah I don't know. As, as i say yeah. it's more the benefit of getting them to check their work and also i like it just works from a classroom management perspective that i say right i'm about to show the answers in 30 seconds you go back and put your confidence scores now it just seems to help but yeah i don't know if there's any added benefits or not. No be nice to try it both ways and see. yeah it would and again colin i don't know if this is just me but i i I tend to get carried away with stuff but i'm thinking this is the next big thing this i'm thinking it's it's one of those things that's so easy to do and as you say you don't have to change any assessments any homework or anything like that but the, mm. the kind of buy-in that the kids have and the, the added benefits to it, I, I think this is almost a no-brainer. I think this is, this is something that, mm-hmm. that should be rolled out fairly wide. I mean, are, are you excited about this?
1: I am I mean I thought it would be a total flop because I thought (laughs) teachers and pupils would all object to negative marking why would you want to do take marks away that's just kind of totally against the culture we often teachers often say you know exams are there to show what you can do then nobody's trying to trick you or catch you out you don't lose marks for anything And I think that contributes to this kind of guessing culture doesn't it what's the worst thing you can do an exam is is leave a question blank yes Um, and yet in everyday life I, I actually you appreciate it when people say I'm not sure I need to look that up you know if you go to see your doctor and you've got something unusual wrong with you you don't want them to guess you want them to say oh, actually I, I need to check that or I need to refer that refer you on you know and so kind of anything that matters um, and that's why they use negative marking in medical exams uh, it's one of the places where negative marking is used because it's better to say to flag something up as unsure than to kind of guess and do something potentially dangerous and i kind of think that's true with anything that matters actually isn't it if if maths matters um it's kind of trivializing it to to just guess and think that that's fine and if you're solving a problem and using any of these techniques as part of a bigger problem you don't want to be just guessing what things are because that's going to potentially mess up the whole thing so it's really good to be able to flag up and say actually i don't know this i need to look it up or ask someone or use a calculator or whatever um, and so I kind of wanted a way to 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 encourage that. So yeah, I thought it would be um, I thought it would be a flop because people would say we don't want negative stuff; it'll discourage kids. But some of the kids said in their responses that they um, uh, it made them more confident um, rather than less confident, or that um, it would increase their confidence. Um, so yeah, I do think it's I do think it could be already it would certainly be an easy thing to trial at scale because yes. it wouldn't involve. Um, you know, distributing loads of stuff or changing things in a dramatic way, and I would just um, so I, I would like to run a study where we just try and see what happens if this is used over a period of time with particular classes. Does, does anything change, both in terms of their attainment, but in terms of their confidence scores as well?
0: and can i just ask as well on, on a practical level and again this is just the way i've done it but it has made me even more convinced and i think and dylan william um, mentions this um, that the best person to mark a test is the person who sat the test and i think that because yeah. in the past i was very much in favor of right let's swap books swap papers you know mark 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 your, your neighbors and all that kind of stuff peer-to-peer marking but would i be right in saying that certainly with this confidence thing it's quite important that the child has the opportunity to reflect on whether they they themselves have got it right or wrong, compare it to the confidence score, assign their own mark, and just have that moment of, of almost silent contemplation or self-explanation or whatever, just just to reflect on that moment. Or does it not matter? Could, it, could this work with peer-to-peer marking?
1: No, I feel the same as you, that
0: it's kind of quite a
1: personal thing you're asking for in a way. Well, what right do I have to ask people for that? Because I kind of <clears throat> feel I have the right to ask them what is two times negative three, but do I have the right to, to ask them that? And and should I expect that they'd be happy to share that publicly? Not necessarily. So I think what you say is exactly right. Um, and I think the swapping books thing, I remember doing that. And one time I asked kids, uh, they'd done a test and I said, right, swap with the person next to you. And one child looked quite indignant and said, don't you trust us? <laughs> and I thought, yes. that's, that's how it's perceived, isn't it? That if you don't swap, then you'll be changing your answers and cheating. And what kind of message does that send? So yeah, I would like a climate where kids thought, Um, they didn't want to cheat they wanted to learn
0: Um, that yeah and uh, again it it goes to a wider point and I don't know what your take on this Colin but one of the things I've been really trying to do is is stop tests and assessments well uh, I've kind of blown it there by using the word assessment but stop tests and quizzes being seen as tools of assessment and more being seen as tools of learning and one of my things there is to make sure that I'm not always recording scores or collecting in scores or anything like that because I want kids just to Benefit from retrieving information and being honest in their own assessments of how well they're doing and so on. So is it again, is it a similar thing with this? Is it important that the teacher records these scores or is the important thing more the experience the kids have in terms of answering the question and then reflecting how that answer compared to their own judgment of confidence?
1: I suppose I see it as both i think it's it's data, and so as a teacher it's nice to yes. to have data, even if we have to be kind of careful how we interpret it and use it and so on. I think teachers are overwhelmed with data though, so on the other hand, you know we 're swamped with with data all the time, both kind of in terms of spreadsheets, but also in terms of kids saying things and responding certain ways and so on. So I guess we're not short of data. I think it's a useful kind of data to have. I mean, the difference between two people with the same score, but with vastly different confidence ratings. I think that's something I'd want to know as the teacher. Yes. Um, yeah. and, and to track as well. Does it, maybe that was just today and how they felt today. Maybe it be different tomorrow. But looking over a period of time as confidence generally higher in this topic than in other topics or is it generally going up or generally going down i think there are things i'd be interested in as a teacher if yeah. i had time to kind of process all that
0: yeah i think i think you're right and with my diagnostic questions website my kind of co-founder simon he's a bit of a data guru and he's been wanting to do right. this for a while he's been wanting to say just before kids or just after kids submit an answer to the site a b c or d yes. he wants them to give a confidence rating and, and we've had like 20 30 million answers so the data that we could get yes. from that like it, it excites him very much and it's starting to excite me a bit now so yeah hopefully that's something we. Can i think you should in. do something there i think you could uh, you
1: could really find something out from all that
0: yeah I, th- I think so too i think so too all right colin well there's one more area i just want to ask you before we move on to reflections and that again i'm saying this all the time but this is another area i'm obsessed with and that's why I was so happy to get you on the show because the kind of three big things we've talked about here the the etudes and, and problem solving and and then with the confidence and now with questioning it's just three of my kind of major areas of interest so I w- I want to start with it's either a good question or a terrible question I can't decide what and that is is it true that open-ended questions are good and closed questions are bad and the reason I ask that is I think that's the message that I received either explicitly or implicitly through training and observations in the early years of my career. And I'm not so sure it's that simple. Um, and in fact, I'm pretty sure that's false. But I wonder what, what your what's your take on the whole open ended and closed questions?
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think it's that's far too simplistic. And I think that's, I suppose, a reaction to um, an overuse of of not just closed questions, but kind of um, kind of trivial questions, I suppose. And so, um, maybe that's a, a reaction to that to encourage people to, to to think more about their questioning. But yes, it, it certainly isn't that simple, is it? And I think often um even yes no questions can be quite profound. I mean some of the big questions, big unanswered questions in maths are actually those kinds of questions is the Riemann hypothesis true yeah, it's a yes no question that doesn't mean it's trivial it doesn't mean you can just answer it quickly and that it's low level and and people you know, in terms of Bloom's taxonomy this is kind of at the bottom uh no certainly not so I think often I mean in your question here you said is it true that open-ended questions are good and closed questions are bad there's an implicit discuss isn't there yeah of course um, and I think that that's part of the classroom climate isn't it if you're asking questions and it's understood that That we never give one word answers there's always this implicit discuss tell me more um then i think to some extent um having the 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 clever kind of perfect question is is perhaps less important in in discussion because sometimes the things if you judge a question by what it produces rather than by how good it sounds when it's written down on paper um if you judge a question by what happens immediately after it's asked then sometimes the, the best questions are things like why or uh, or just mm -hmm, or just a pause um where or can you tell me a bit more or uh what do you think those things which look very unimpressive if you made a list of them you could be no point writing them all down in a long list but those sorts of things which elicit more um are are, are very powerful i think so um no i certainly think i i think i think open-ended questions have have a place and i think I think planning a good question is important. And particularly, I mean, I saw a lesson, um, I thought a very good lesson I saw a teacher give um, to year seven class where um, his opening question, he was trying to get at powers of 10 and his opening question was, what's the biggest number you know? And I remember thinking that's quite a carefully worded question. Yeah. He hadn't just made it up on the spur of the moment. He didn't say what's the biggest number because probably someone would have said there isn't one or yes. infinity or something, and it might have not gone in the direction he wanted. He said what's the biggest number you know? And then someone said a million, and then a billion, a trillion, a zillion, <laughs> and and then and then it was, he had this lovely discussion where he said, well, how big are these numbers? Um, and which one's the biggest? And does anyone know how to write any of these? And they came to the board and and wrote. And, and so how how many is a billion? Do you know anything? That's of billions. Uh, yeah, he had this lovely discussion, but I think that first question that he asked, he planned quite carefully um, down to the actual words in it. And I think um, sometimes having a really carefully crafted question can really help, but perhaps as the starting point, and then beyond that, being able to just say, uh huh, tell me more, what do you think, do you agree with him? Those sorts of generic things uh, I think are, 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 are equally powerful.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. And, and so, would it be the case, Colin, that you can only really judge how good a question is, essentially based on the responses that you either expect or that you get from it? Is is that the real test of a, a good question? What, what it, how it causes the students to think and respond?
1: I think, yes. I mean, there's no point in questions. They're not an end in themselves, are they? They're about generating thinking and discussion. And so I think, um, yes, it's what effect it has. I mean, you see those those kind of political interviews where some journalists ask a clever, very, very long winded question. (laughs) And the politician just picks one little bit out of it to take issue with. there's There's nothing good about that, really. I think often just short, simple questions can be very helpful. What's going on here? What do you think? you agree is that right these these sorts of questions that get to the heart of what's going on and that kind of the attention isn't
0: really on the question the intention is on the the maths that's being talked about and can, can I ask just again on a practical level because this is something that I think has been a weakness in my in my teaching over the last kind of 12 years that just running those classroom discussions, so asking a really interesting question, but making sure that every child's benefiting from it, so every child's thinking, every child's contemplating that question, and it's not the case that kids can opt out or or their attention can wander and so on. Like, Have you any advice or any experience of, 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 of kind of running those successful discussions when you've got a really interesting question like you described from that teacher, what's the biggest number you know? how do you get the most out of that in, in a classroom environment
1: there has to be a question that everybody can answer doesn't it because everybody knows at least one number so everybody can say something um and because it's about you then it's kind of not wrong because if the biggest number you know is a million then that's the biggest number you yes, know yes so you're not going to say oh, i'm sorry you got that wrong and so it's kind of a safe question i think kids pick up on they notice when a question is kind of safe like that so questions that are about you like how did you do this or what did you find hard when you did this or what did you what approaches did you take they're kind of genuine questions that i don't know the answer to as the teacher and i'm interested in and i want to know and they kind of feel like they're real questions and i think uh those sorts of questions everybody can answer it um to take another example i saw a lesson where the teacher said what um uh what's an integer and uh, somebody said, uh, is it to do with triangles? And a teacher didn't want to say no, so he said, well, maybe. Uh, <laughs> what do other people think? And someone else then picked up on the idea of triangles. And it kind of went on and on. And I thought, really, with that question, it's a kind of definition. You either know it or you don't. Yes. And there's not much value in forcing people to answer a question like that. So if you use lolly sticks and you say, do you know what an integer is? No okay take another lolly stick with somebody's name on do you know what an integer is no i don't either and um, you can go around the whole room <laughs> and uh so there's not so it's a poor match between the kind of question and the, the the way in which you're kind of approaching it so i think lolly sticks can be very good for a, a question like what's the biggest number that you know and you can call, cold call on someone who might not answer otherwise um but i also think there's a place for shy people and i've certainly had shy kids in my class who've who've been very engaged and the fact that they weren't talking very much and they weren't volunteering to answer very much didn't mean that they w- were kind of uh uh not participating in what was going on and i think the idea that unless you're talking you're not involved uh, can be a bit simplistic and, and maybe culturally insensitive as well sometimes so i think uh, you know, i think cold call, call calling on people who you think will have something to say but are just not saying it is is useful but i think you know uh, torturing somebody who really doesn't want to talk in front of other people when actually they're learning lots in um, the way in which they're working is perhaps counterproductive.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I guess that comes down to the knowledge and experience that you've got of your kids and yeah, yes, knowing yeah. that that's, that's very interesting. And uh, I guess kind of my last question on question in common is, is the notion of students asking questions? I mean, is that a useful thing um, for, for students to I, either ask questions to each other or write down questions to share with the teacher? Is that something you'd encourage?
1: I think so, as long as it's not asking a question for the sake of asking a question. You know, no, like yes. people do, again, like grown-ups do in meetings and things. Are there any questions? <laughs> so they they think of a question because they think that's what they're supposed to do. And I think sometimes kids do that if you force them. You say, well, we're we going to collect up a long list of questions on the board about this. So everybody has to think of a question. Then they're asking questions because they've been told to ask questions rather than because they're trying to find anything out. Um And so really, I think inquiry is more than than just kind of generating questions isn't it it's about kind of feeling that there's something here that you want to know more about and that's that's much harder but i I suppose i'd be trying to create a culture in which people wanted to ask questions because they wanted to uh, to discover something rather than just because questions are good i mean i think questions are good and, and really powerful um but i also think comments are good and um sometimes uh so if I'm leading seminars and things, I try not to say any questions, I try to say any questions or comments, because often people don't actually have a question, but they what's been said has made them think of something that they could, uh, a story they could tell or something they could share, and that's equally valuable. And if people feel they have to dress that up as a question that's kind of a non-question, which is kind of becomes, um, do you agree with what I've just said? Um, then I think that's that's not really a question. So it's fine for people just to make comments and and say, does anyone have anything they want to say? I used to say quite a lot in the classroom, any thoughts, anybody want to say anything about this? I think those sorts of, of questions can be quite good, and they can be a question, but I think questions can be limiting as well, because often when kids ask questions, they pose it in a certain way that implies that the teacher knows and is going to tell them, and actually... It's actually sometimes more powerful for kids to make statements than ask questions. I say, can anyone tell me anything about this? Rather than saying, you know, is it a parallelogram? Um, rather than asking a question like that, let to say, I think it's a parallelogram, which is perhaps what they really mean.
0: Yes. But making
1: it OK to make statements so they can say, I think it's a parallelogram. And someone else might say, no, it isn't. And we can have a discussion about it. But everything doesn't have to be framed as a question.
0: That's really interesting. And I guess as well, it, it comes down to choice of activity, like the, the etus that we spoke about at the start, they lend themselves really nicely to, to either questions or, as you've said, their statements, right? Because if, if kids are working their way through the the uh, equation polygon, one that we talked about, or you're multiplying digits, then there are either naturally questions or statements or observations that are going to occur, mm. and it doesn't feel forced to, uh, yes. to to ask kids to make them. And I think, yeah, choice of activity really com really comes into its own when it comes to encouraging kids to to ask questions, if that makes yes. sense.
1: Also, well, conjecture, I suppose, is the word I was yes. looking for, isn't it? Yes, yeah, to make conjectures and and even you know you're not necessarily staking your life on it you're saying <laughs> yeah. i think this may be the case and it's okay if someone else has a counter example or, or disagrees and we can talk about
0: it that's right that's right well colin well let's move on now to some reflections so so the first question i want to ask you is um and it's uh, quite a tricky one this um what would you consider to be three essential research findings or principles that all teachers should know
1: oh it's really difficult isn't it <laughs> but yes i mean uh I think teachers know a lot from their classrooms and I think that knowledge is really important knowledge um and uh I think that should be valued and so I don't see teachers as kind of ignorant people who need to be told stuff that they they don't know so I I think I think they have to be careful about the relationship between research um as done in universities and the very real knowledge that teachers have of their classrooms um I mean I think there's 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 really helpful stuff out there. I think there's lots of research out there that is really useful. I mean, there's a there's a the EFA publishing a a guidance report which I've I've worked with on uh, worked with uh, Jeremy Hodgen and Rachel Marks on uh, providing evidence for, and that will be coming out probably by the time this uh, podcast goes out. And I think the the recommendations there are really helpful, and they're trying to synthesise. a large amount of educational research that's out there I think really it's syntheses of research that are most useful I think the stuff that the ETH toolkit and things like that which which bring together um, research and try to balance um, the different findings I think are more useful than you know seizing on one paper that makes some startling claim but which might be kind of contradicted by other papers that you haven't got time to read so I think I think research syntheses can be can be really useful and i hope that guidance report will be will be will be helpful
0: fantastic and yeah we'll, we'll certainly place a link to that on the podcast page and if Thanks. it's not out if it's not out by the time the podcast comes we'll link to it retrospectively so yeah that that sounds oh, amazing great. That sounds amazing that colin um and again just on on research is there anything that surprised you um when you've either been reading or conducting your own research anything that you thought oh I, I didn't actually see that coming yeah. Well again I think when things are surprising they might be wrong. And I think <laughs> yes, um, yes. <laughs> you know, if
1: a teacher who knows classrooms and knows kids and so on reads a piece of research I think this really feels this doesn't feel right, this doesn't this doesn't sit with my experience then it may be wrong i mean some research doesn't replicate some research just isn't right um and people shouldn't uh, be intimidated by it but i think that that doesn't mean we should all just uh, be kind of unteachable and certainly <laughs> um we can be wrong about things and we need to be corrected about stuff but i think i think what i'd look for are things that are not not isolated studies not just one study comes up with some weird result but but extended programs of of research uh, things which are kind of connected together where there's some understanding of how they of how they work. I mean, for me, something that's been really helpful to me is, is uh, Anne Watson and John Mason's work on learner-generated examples. I think it's a f- fantastic um, piece of work. And that extends across so many uh, studies that they've done And their book. Uh, Mathematics as a Constructive Activity is, I think, one of the absolutely key books in the field. Um, and it's really helped me to see the power. And I think, that, I guess, this is surprising, the power of generating your own examples and, and developing an example space. And I think that's influenced how I um think about planning uh topics and and teaching thinking what are the key examples that i'd want kids to experience what are the non-examples that like we talked about earlier what are the things that really i'd want every child to to come face to face with and how might that, that example space get kind of enriched and extended through the uh, the tasks that we do so I, for
0: me that's that's a, a really really powerful uh, piece of research Oh, that sounds great! And I, I bumped into I bumped into John Mason at a conference recently, and I'm, I'm in negotiations to get him and i um, on the show because I'm equally fascinated by those areas. So, fingers yeah, crossed that, that get that one. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> you must um And well, you've kind of teased and answered this already. I'm, I'm assuming that the, the book there, the Mathematics uh, Constructive Examples, would be one book that you'd recommend teachers should read. Is there anything else, Colin, that springs to mind? Yes.
1: Well, again, synthesis of things. So I think the Key Ideas in Teaching Mathematics book, the naffield book that, uh, again, Anne Watson, um uh, Keith Jones, Dave Pratt um, wrote, um, is a really nice summary of, of, of research. But I think if, if you're asking for things teachers Uh, could read I think as well as books I would say um, the publications from the ATM and the MA um, books but also the journals I think um, they're great because they're short articles they're very often uh, classroom based Um, they're really uh, the things that stimulated me so much when I was in the classroom and continue to do Um, and yeah, if reading, why not why not write as well for those those journals? That's how I started writing things was by writing just a short two hundred word piece for for mathematics teaching and um, really for my own benefit, not because I thought anyone would be interested in reading it, but just because I, uh, it would help me to think through what had happened in in some things that happened in the classroom. And um, I think people worry, oh, no one would be interested in what what I have to say, but actually. Uh, for me, let the editor worry about that. If yes. least, they won't publish it. Uh, write it, send it in and, and you might be surprised how other people might, might appreciate it and, and find it
0: helpful. That's good advice. Fantastic. And the last reflection before I hand over to you for your big three is what do you wish you'd known when you first started teaching that you know now, Colin?
1: Um I think when I started teaching I was very focused on good lessons. I wanted to kind of collect up these good lessons that I'd seen people teach and maybe invent some of my own and kind of have this kind of set of of good lessons. I've got a good <laughs> lesson I, I've got a good lesson on this. And I just thought it was about getting more and more Good lessons, but I think eventually I realised that it's um, it's more useful to think in terms of good sequences of lessons, um, taking a longer view. I think quite hard to say sometimes whether an individual lesson is good or bad. I really struggle with that. If I'm if I'm watching a lesson, I think well, it kind of depends what came before and after. It kind of depends on the bigger picture. That, that, uh, and so I think that that um, it's problematic to bring good lessons together and assume that that will that will just do it. Um, so sometimes I've been in situations where a group of teachers comes together. Let's plan a module on Pythagoras. Everyone brings their favorite lessons or activities. And somebody's job is to kind of merge all these together into <laughs> some super unit. And why should that work? I mean, maybe maybe they don't fit together. Maybe there are some choices to be made. It's kind of like saying, everybody, come to my house tomorrow and bring their favorite food and we'll make something with it. Well, it wouldn't necessarily work. You've got to make choices like, well... Uh, let's have a chinese food night and i wonder what the equivalent choices are if you're if you're devising a unit on pythagoras or something what's the equivalent choice you have to make about your approach maybe pythagoras is too small a unit but if you're thinking about algebra or something massive like that maybe it's not just about having good tasks and good lessons maybe you need some kind of principles some overarching kind of coherent way of approaching it and i think that's something I didn't appreciate at all when I started teaching I just thought lessons were good or bad and um, the idea that there are choices to be made and two lessons may both be good but maybe incompatible and not really make sense to to do one after the another.
0: That's fascinating yeah I I absolutely love that and I've I I think that to, it comes, I've got a few concerns with joint planning as a whole that I think there's more effective ways of doing this. And I won't go over it, it's all the ground I've talked about it in previous podcasts, but that's a really interesting uh, analogy you've drawn there with the the bringing food to a party. I, I, I like that. And often when you try and shoehorn incompatible things together, you just end up with something that's very much less than the sum of its parts. So yeah, I think that's yeah. very interesting, Colin. I love that. Well, I'm going to shut up now and I'm going to hand over to you for the finale for your big three. And I'll provide links to all these in the show notes but what uh, three websites blog posts or whatever you want would you like to direct our listeners to
1: oh i found this really hard because uh, I, I'm, I'm a very internetty person and um, obviously lots of the great websites are very well known to your to your listeners, so um, obviously there's things like Enrich and Resourceaholic. I think Resourceaholic is the one that I would most wish had been around when I was teaching. Yes, um, but there, there are great things out there. But people know about those. So I thought, what might people be less familiar with? So I think for the first one, there's uh, maths. Uh, mathshell.org or mathshell if you read it that way, which is the Shell Centre materials, and there's a massive collection of resources there. It's just recently been updated with more things, and so if you haven't been there for a while, go and have a look there. There's, uh, I think there's the the language is language of functions and graphs that book that Malcolm Swan um, contributed to um, is worth going there just for that. There's this amazing stuff there. Um, so that would be my first one. Um, my second one would be the Espressos at Cambridge Maps. I think they're really nice summaries of things to even think about. They're, they're, they're short, they leave a lot unsaid, but they're really good starting points for, for thinking about all kinds of issues. Um, and then my third one would be the DanielWillingham.com. Uh, uh, the articles that he writes there I mean I really like his book um, what's it called why don't students like school um, and I've just been getting into his writing recently and I think there's a really nice set of articles there um, might not agree with everything but I think that they're really stimulating and thought-provoking
0: that's fantastic what a what a wonderful choice a uh, selection of choices and Colin I can't believe you've, you've left out your own website here which is a, a sign <laughs> of your humility but I, I can't I can't let you go without mentioning it because it, it, it's an absolutely, it, it's a wonderful website, and it's just a, a gold mine of, of resources. So I wonder, just just to end here, can you just talk about a couple of the things that are linked to from your website that you're particularly proud of? That if people were to, to stumble upon your website, and I'll, I'll place a link to it, but it's foster seventy seven dot co dot uk. What, 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 where would you advise people to to make a start?
1: Um, well, if you want to read Articles for Teachers, then go to where it says uh, Selected Publications. There's a little thing that the tab says More, and then there's a ridiculously long list of all pretty much everything I've ever written. Um, there's links to books as well that I've written. Um, but I think perhaps more useful than that might be um, the MathematicalEtudes.com is linked from it, which is where I've put um, the growing collection of etudes that I've found or uh, developed um and i'm hoping that's going to grow a lot more over the year i'm looking for some funding to try and develop more of these and so um hopefully that list will will grow and become a bit better organized than just a simple list um and then the other one is the mathematicalbeginnings.com if you scroll down to the bottom of the foster 77.co.uk page right at the bottom there's a link to mathematicalbeginnings.com and um, we didn't have a chance to talk about that today but there are a lot of kind of uh they're intended to be rich starting points for for lessons quite open-ended um problem solving type lessons
0: that's fantastic and there'll be links to all that and everything we've discussed today in the show notes so all that remains for me to do Colin is, is to thank you for, firstly for your time this morning it's like I cannot tell you how much I've enjoyed this conversation It's it's, it's been wow. fascinating it's been three areas that I'm vastly um, interested in and it's been great to discuss debate and just find out your take on things so I've loved that but also well, it's been a
1: real pleasure thank you thank you for inviting me it's been
0: oh thanks Colin and just thank you so much for, for again all the work that you've done over um, over the years all the tasks you've designed all the research that you've shared and stuff and as the the etudes like I am absolutely obsessed with these I'm convinced these are the future so yeah if people want to share ideas and stuff like that um, and we can kind of grow this collection that that would be absolutely brilliant that would be brilliant thanks so much for your time Colin thanks a lot So there you have it. There was my interview with Colin Foster. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. I am supremely confident that you did. Colin was such a wonderful guest. And in this takeaway, I just want to reflect on three things, really, that kind of the, the three main things Colin and I discussed. The first is problem solving. And I'm I think I'm pretty happy having spoke to flipping God knows how many guests about this now and read everything I can get my hands on, I'm pretty confident I'm I'm comfortable in my position where I stand. So let let me try and articulate this as clearly as I can. I'm convinced of two things, really. The first is that fluency is important. Now, whether you go down the cognitive science route and argue that fluency is important because it means you automate key processes, which frees up space in working memory to to essentially solve problems, thinking about the wider structure, spot relationships and so on. Or you just realize that it's just a useful thing for kids to be able to recall facts and, and carry out procedures without having to think and dwell on it too much. I think it's safe to say that fluency is an important thing and that's not too controversial. I think how we develop fluency is slightly controversial and once you start going down the route of timings and drills and all that, that's when we start to see a divide and that's something I discussed with Lucy from from Cambridge Mathematics um, a couple of episodes ago. But the the notion that fluency itself is important, I think that's that's relatively uh, uncontroversial. But what I think is controversial, but which I'm I'm equally convinced about, is that that fluency and that automaticity, or whatever we want to call it, shouldn't be developed alongside trying to solve problems. And let me just be clear what I mean about that. And I think this is where myself and, for example, Andrew Blair, we, we disagree slightly on this. Or perhaps slightly, forget slightly, pretty significantly, I think. Because I think to, to get the most out of an, an open-ended problem or an unstructured problem, and I know these are terms that you can pick apart, but I, I'm talking about not unconventional problems, multi-step questions in exams, rich tasks from Enrich and so on. To get the most out of that, I don't think students can afford to be getting bogged down in the minutiae the, the fine details trying to recall and i i use the example of fractions this an obvious one to fall back on but if you're having to think oh how do i add fractions how do what do i need to do with the denominators what how do i get the lowest common denominator now what do i do now what do i do with the numerators now how do i simplify my answer if you're having to think about that you're not going to be appreciating and benefiting from the wider things that the problem's about. Whether it's spotting a relationship, identifying a shortcut, um, seeing a pattern. You're not going to benefit from that if you're having to get bogged down and think and pause all the time about the, uh, about the basic skills. So for me, you have two options really. One is you teach the basic skills first. And possibly do that using example problem pairs or um, and combine that with variation theory. And that's something we've touched upon on the last couple of podcasts and which I'm going to dig deeper in when I get Chris Bolton back on the show. And then once those skills are secure, then you introduce students to these problems from, from uh, Enrich and so on, and these multi mark exam questions. Or you do what Colin and I discussed and you use purposeful practice or a mathematical etude And the advantage of that is you are getting that fluency alongside developing and spotting these relationships and these problem-solving abilities. But crucially... The practice is the key thing and it's only through practicing a specific procedure over and over again that you start to spot these shortcuts, that you start to spot these connections. And I loved what Colin said about how a good series of questions or or examples or something at the end of it should should beg questions. There should be something to discuss. And I think if we present students with those kind of activities that precede, they have to come before the open ended stuff like from Enrich and so on, that's when I think then kids then start to benefit from the wonderful problems from Enrich and all the other sources. Whereas in the past, I'm going to hold my hands up here, I've tried to cut out the middleman, I've tried to do a two for one job, chuck a load of problems at the kids, and let's try and solve the problem and learn the basic skills at the same time. And I'm probably at the stage now where I'm convinced that is not the way to do it. So hope that kind of clarifies my thoughts on problem solving. I'll probably change my mind completely in two more weeks when I get another guest on, but that's where I'm at now. Um, Second thing, confidence. Uh, I'm sorry if I'm, I'm sound like a broken record because I'm, I'm absolutely obsessed with confidence. I, I think this is a game changer, this. I think it's going to be the next big thing because it's so simple to do it, it, it you don't have to redesign a test a homework or anything like that it's just a case of getting kids to reflect on how confident they were in a particular um, answer that they gave and it's so many benefits this i mean two main well two or three main ones and um, the first i mentioned it the way i present it um, it gets kids to reflect on their work so that they finish 10 questions and then when you say to kids, check their work, as if they're flipping bothered about that. What a waste of time. But if you say pop a confidence score down, then implicitly they, they have to go back and, and reevaluate their answer and think, oh, why did I put that? Am I sure about that? All right, I'm gonna give it a seven out of ten and so on. So it's it's brilliant just just for that, if nothing else. But it's great as well if if kids get it wrong. Um, but they were really confident. That's a great discussion point there. And even if you don't discuss it, just via the hypercorrection effect of kids just, it's like a shock, shock to the system, flipping echo. I was 10 out of 10 that I got that right. Oh my God, I've got it wrong. Why? And just that, um, diverting kids' attention towards those, those high confidence errors can be a really powerful thing, I think. And also I mentioned with Colin, this kind of metacognitive aspect of it as well. It helps kids realize their strengths and weaknesses and this this is true of all kind of testing it's one of the major benefits of 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 testing that if you're just reading notes or highlighting stuff everything feels familiar everything feels nice and comfortable yeah i can do fractions sir i read my notes on it last night or i uh, I saw you do a worked example i watched a video i'm great at fractions. But it's only when you actually do it and you're trying to induce retrieval under test conditions or conditions where you don't have notes with you and so on, that you really know whether you can do something or not. And when you combine that with confidence, and when there's a disparity between how well you think you know something and how well you actually know something, and it's really brought to light explicitly by this confidence score, I think that's a really powerful thing for students. So I love it for that. Um, I love the way Colin suggests doing the confidence thing. I, l- I, love, I love this negative score. So if you're if you're right, 8 out of 10, I reckon I know how to do this, and you get it wrong, you've actually got minus 8. It's lovely, that. And it's how UKMT um, marks, I don't know if they still do it, actually, but it's how they certainly used to mark some of their latter questions, that if you took a guess and you got it wrong, you actually got negative marks. And there's something quite powerful about that. Um, I'm still not entirely sold on the idea that data has to always be collected certainly not to take advantage of a lot of the um the benefits of testing and, and this moments of self-reflection but i agree with colin that would be a wonderfully fascinating data set to get in if you do if you can manage to record these kids confidence scores and um, but I, I also like what Colin said that an advantage of mine is uh, the way I do it so that's when kids answer questions first and then go back and reflect on their confidence uh, how confident they were Um, is that it reduces cognitive load. i would not thought of it that way but I guess if you're answering a question and at the same time trying to think how confident you were about it it's quite a lot for working memory to process whereas if you you can just worry about answering the question and then go back and reflect on your confidence later on and perhaps you get the dual benefit of a reduction in cognitive load and also what I talked about before about actually reflecting on your answers and checking your answers and so on. And finally, questioning. i will with questioning. I spoke to Paul Rowlandson a while back now on the show um, about the research he'd done into questioning. And I just love Colin's, Colin's point. Such a simple point, but aren't they always the best? That let's not just ask for questions, let's ask for statements or conjectures. And I've been there myself. <laughs> and when Colin said about meetings or even inter- interviews, I reckon are the worst. Whenever at the end of the interview they say, have you got any questions? Like you're just obliged to come up with the most mundane question. You're just asking a question for the sake of asking a question because you, you you feel obliged to do so. But I love that. Has anybody got any questions, statements or conjectures? I think that's really nice. Just Has anybody got any observations? Has anybody got anything to say? It doesn't need to be a question. It can just be a summary, a conjecture or whatever. A little tweak can make all the difference and it's always the best way of that so there you have it um, all that remains for me to do is once again thank Colin Foster what a fantastic guest Like and again what a nice man not to not to uh pick his own website out when he's when he's mentioning his big three if i hadn't mentioned it i don't think it would have come up at all in the conversation so a wonderful website as i say use uh use his website and the, the foster 77 to get to all the the mathematical research it's really nice research that colin's written it's written in a really accessible way there's loads of maths examples in there it's absolutely fascinating and then the Mathematical Etudes site, um, I think that, I'm, I'm going to make a claim here, that that could grow to be one of the most important maths websites out there on the web. I, I think this bridge between practice, routine practice, developing fluency, and this wider problem solving, I think it's the holy grail. So wonderful, wonderful, wonderful website. And Mathematical Beginnings, we didn't get a chance to talk about it today, but that's absolutely fascinating as well. And There's, there's great descriptions about how to run those on the website. So as I said, I really hope you enjoyed that one. And thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And indeed you hear throughout every episode. And finally, how could I forget it? Thank you to my loyal listeners. Thank you for keeping listening to these and thank you for spreading the word and please keep doing it. Easiest ways to spread the word, tell your friends about it, tell your colleagues about it, and also, if possible, if you've got a spare minute, and I know everybody's snowed under with stuff, quick review on iTunes, quick rating, ideally a good one, it just helps it it bump up the charts, it helps more people be aware of these podcasts, and it just helps spread good CPD, manageable CPD, free CPD, CPD that you can listen to on the move, just helps spread that around. And hopefully that makes us all better teachers and helps our students learn more. So thanks so much for listening. I shall be back with some more stellar guests in the near future. Take care of yourselves. Bye for now.